Thank you for downloading the Grove City Vineyard Sermon Podcast. Enjoy today's message. Amen. Well, thank you so much, worship team. Gosh, that was so good, wasn't it? Man, that is a tough act to follow every time. Well, welcome again to Grove City Vineyard Church. It's good to be with you all. My name is Christian Root, and I am the associate pastor here, and just really, really thankful to to get to share with you all this morning. And if you have a Bible, why don't you just turn it right now to Ephesians 4? We're going to jump on in this morning. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. And then this is what we read, starting in verse 1. Paul says this to the church in Ephesus. He says, as a prisoner for the Lord then. Paul was in, in prison as he wrote this letter. He says, as a prisoner for the Lord then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. It says, be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort, every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Today's passage, Paul begins by urging the Ephesian believers to live a life worthy of the calling they've received. And when Paul speaks about their calling, he's not referring to a particular role within the church or a a particular career. He's referring to the magnificent inheritance that is given to all followers of Jesus. Paul spends the first three chapters of the book of Ephesians outlining all that is given to those of us who are, are followers of Jesus. All that followers of Jesus are going to inherit. So let me run through some of those highlights with you really quickly. First three chapters of Ephesians. Starting in in chapter 1, verse 4. You don't have to turn there with me. We're going to have it for you on the screen. Verse 4. We've been chosen by God before the creation of the world. It's pretty good news. Verse 5. He goes on to say, He predestined us to be His children, making us heirs of all our Father owns. It's a pretty good deal. Verse 7, God sent Christ to die as a sacrifice for the forgiveness of our sins. Verse 13, we're told we have received the Holy Spirit who serves as a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. We move on to chapter 2 and verse 6. We have been raised up with Christ and seated with Him in the heavenly realms. That in the heavenly realms we have been given victory with Christ over all All demonic power or principality. Verse 13, we who are Gentiles, and that's most of us, not all of us. We who are Gentiles have been brought near to God by the blood of Jesus. And we've been reconciled to our Jewish brothers and sisters in Christ. Those who are believers. And then in chapter 15, 19, and 21, we have become members of God's household. The new temple. Of the Lord. And and these are just a few of the highlights. We could could go on. And and so Paul says, in light of all that you've been given, in in the light of all that we've covered in the first part of my letter, I'm urging you to live a life worthy of the calling that you've received. And so listen to me now. If you are here and you're a follower of Jesus, the reason why you can have hope this morning The reason why you can have a smile on your face, the reason why even now in the midst of a pandemic, in the midst of a a polarized and fragmented culture, in the midst of your current trying circumstances, whatever they happen to be, 
The reason why even now that you can experience joy is because there are some things, church, that can never be taken away from you. Do you know that? You have been chosen before the creation of the world. You have been adopted as a child of God. You've been given the Holy Spirit who serves as this guarantee, this down payment of your inheritance. You have been bought by Christ. You have been reconciled with the Father, and you've been united with the people of God. That is what is most true of you, church. It's what's most true of you. And and you know, if you're here and you would say, "I, I do not have a relationship with Jesus. I, I do not have a, a meaningful relationship with Jesus that, that is making any type of difference in my life. Let, let me just urge you now, today you can decide to make that change. Today you can decide to, to welcome Jesus into your heart. You can say to Jesus this morning, even right now, I believe Jesus by faith that you died in my place. I believe that because you willingly substituted yourself in my place that I can now receive forgiveness solely based on your work alone. You can come before Jesus and say, look, I I don't want to live the way that I've been living. I want to repent of my sins. And I believe that solely because of what you've done for me, Jesus, that I'm going to be with you for eternity. You can say that right now. You can make that prayer. You can receive all the inheritance that belongs to those who are followers of Jesus. Now, how do we live a life worthy of the calling that we've received? Well, Paul answers the question, at least in part, in, in, in verses 2 and 3, in the next two verses. So let's, let's head to verse 2, shall we? So this is what we read in verse 2. Paul says, be completely humble and gentle. Be humble, Paul says. Now, the tricky thing about humility, of course, is that the more prideful you are, the higher your view of yourself, the more you tend to think of yourself as humble. That's how it works. It is the prideful who generally give themselves the highest marks when it comes to humility. And so how can we determine if if we're humble? Well, for the sake of time, let let me just give you one one mark of humility, just one. I, I call this the kernel of truth principle. You know, when a humble person is criticized or when they're challenged, a humble person, even if they disagree with the criticism, tends to look for the kernel of truth in the statements. They they tend to look for what might be accurate, what what might actually be true of them, even if only in parts. Because, you see, a humble person, they, they understand that they don't have everything figured out. They understand that they don't have all of the answers. They understand that they have blind spots and room for growth. And and so a a humble person almost never rejects criticism out of hand. Instead, they, they turn their attention on themselves and they take time to examine whether the critique has any merit. Often they might even ask their spouse or their friends if the critique is accurate. You know, when a, a humble person is told, for example, that they're micromanaging their coworkers, even in small ways, or, or when they're told that they just seem a little bit more negative than usual. You know, when a humble person is gently told that they seem less invested in their friendships or, or that they're working too many hours, a humble person, they look for the kernel of truth, and they grow as a result. 
Friends, I, I can't tell you how many emails I've written over the years or how many conversations I've had in which I've had to speak a hard truth in love, had to share a harder word with someone, and, and found that the man or the woman whom I was sharing with was simply not willing to look for the kernel of truth. Their response over email or in person, it consisted solely of defending their own position, of going on the defensive. For every point I made, they had a counterpoint, they had an excuse, they had a justification. And I have received detailed emails in which someone has taken the time to dismiss my advice or gentle correction point by point excusing their behavior, justifying their choices without ever any hint that any of my arguments had any measure of validity. And, and you know, when I encounter this type of defensiveness, this unwillingness to budge on their position at any point, if I'm honest, it's hard not to be discouraged as a pastor or as their friends. Because not only does this type of behavior betray a lack of humility, and it does. But because I, I know that those who refuse to look for a kernel of truth ultimately are short-circuiting their opportunities for growth. Maturing in the Lord is extremely difficult when we're unwilling to recognize our faults and our flaws. And so, friend, let me, let me make this a bit more personal for a moment. You know, as you look at your own life, would you say, you know, when I'm challenged... When, for example, I'm confronted by my boss about my work performance, or when I receive a gentle correction from a, a friend about my attitude, when my spouse takes issue with my availability at home or my response to one of our kids, that, that even if I don't fully agree with their critique, that I, I'm not someone who simply goes on the defensive. I don't immediately try and invalidate the other person's opinion. Instead, I, I look for the kernel of truth. I, I try to learn from criticism, even if I don't agree with it fully. Paul tells us that those of us who are followers of Jesus, we're called to be humble people. People who understand that we don't have all the answers, that we haven't yet arrived. And one of the surefire signs of a, a humble spirit is someone who looks for the kernel of truth when they're challenged. Friend, do you see this in your own life? Secondly, Paul tells us to be gentle. To be gentle. It's our next point. Let's look at verse 2 again. Be completely humble, Paul says, and gentle. Now let me offer you one way to determine if you're a gentle person. The best test I know to determine if we're gentle or not is to ask ourselves the question, am I a safe person? person to offend. Am I a safe person to offend? And by a safe person here, guys, I'm not referring to a wet blanket, someone who never calls out the faults in others, someone who's forever people-pleasing and pretended, pretending that they're not offended or they're hurt, someone who perpetually caters to the sins of others in order to maintain the peace, in order to avoid conflicts. It's not what I'm talking about at all. But you know, what I am asking, church, is this. When you are offended, are you a person who can just easily forgive an offense, who can look past it, or who can express your disappointment with 
the offender in a composed or a relatively controlled manner? Or are you someone who pulls out the boxing gloves? You know, every family member has, every family rather, has at least one family member that you want to make sure doesn't get offended, that you just want to make sure doesn't get upset. For if Uncle Jack or if Grandma gets offended, you're just never going to hear the end of it. And there's going to be lots of drama and family members are going to to be unnecessarily dragged into the conflict and and it's going to to become a, a big deal. Do you, do you know anyone like that? Someone you feel like you just have to, to tiptoe around? Someone you have, you have to walk on eggshells around? Or is that just my family? Do you know anyone like that? And, and if you would say, I, I don't know anyone like that in my family, well, perhaps you're that person, right? <laughs> That's how it works. If you would say, no, I don't. Yeah. And so, again, let me ask you, would your coworkers, would your fellow home group members, would your parents, or perhaps your, your children or your spouse, would they say that when you are genuinely offended, when you've been sinned against, when your feelings haven't been taken into consideration, that you typically, not always, but typically, respond with a me- measure of gentleness and composure? Would the people closest to you, those who know you best, would they say that you're a safe person to offend? That you look for the right moment to discuss the offense just between the two of you and that you remain calm and show respect to the one who's offended you? Would they say that you try to avoid excessive shaming and that you avoid becoming passive-aggressive? Or are you someone, again, who just flies off the handle. Someone who can easily hold a grudge for weeks, if not months, without seeking reconciliation. Or are you someone who just quickly looks to punch back if you feel wrongfully attacked? Listen, I understand that all of us have different personalities and that some of us have more mild temperaments by nature while other of us are a bit more fiery. But you know, Paul offers us no wiggle room here in verse 2. He does not say to us, if your general temperament and personality allows, be completely gentle with others. That's not what he says. He says he states that gentleness is the expectation for all who claim to follow Jesus. Be completely gentle, he says. And, And you know, for those of us who would say, I have a bit of a gentleness issue... This isn't how I'm naturally wired. I'm a bit more fiery by nature. I'm a bit more combative by nature. I I wonder what the Lord might do if you would commit to praying for a gentle spirit even once a day for the next several weeks or months. I mean, what might the Lord do if you would regularly, just three minutes, five minutes, come before the Lord and say, look, this is an issue in my life, Father. I'm not as gentle as I want to be. I am not a safe person to offend. You know, it just astonishes me at times when I look at my own life, when I look at the life of others, that how often we we readily acknowledge that there's sin in our life. And yet we're unwilling to just take three minutes, five minutes to regularly bring that sin before the Father and ask for freedom and ask for, for change. 
Now listen, I'm not suggesting that every sin in our lives is just going to go away by, by offering up a three-minute prayer every day. I understand that a lot of our sin is, is rooted in, in deep-seated lies that we believe about ourselves or about the world. I understand that some of our sin is rooted in a, perhaps emotional trauma from our past. I am not suggesting that, that you can just find perfection in life by, by a three-minute prayer. That's not what I'm saying. But, but you know, for some of us, would we be willing to start here? Would we be willing to say, Jesus, I see the holidays are approaching, and I know work is going to get more stressful, and I know family is going to be around me, and they're going to be getting under my skin. Would you help me in the coming months, Jesus, to be a more gentle person, to be more quick to forgive, to be more quick to to just swallow whatever comment comes quickly to my mind? Now listen, The temptation for followers of Jesus, for those of us who who are Christians, will always be to show gentleness to someone's face, to shrug off an offense in the moment, only to speak poorly of the offending party when they're not around, right? That's how a good Christian does it. We're, We're gentle to the face, but then... And you know, if this is the pattern present in your life, you need to know you're not being gentle toward others. You're just hiding your claws, right? That's what's going on. A woman who feels the need to discuss an incident with a coworker with seemingly everyone else in the workplace, so that by the end of the day, the, the whole office is aware of the encounter, that's not a safe person to offend, is it? And you know, a man who stands around in the church parking lot after a service discussing his frustrations about a fellow worship team member, this is not a safe person to offend. When we speak poorly behind, about someone behind their back, we might be showing gentleness to a person's face, but ultimately we're committing violence against their character when they're not around. It's not a gentle spirit. St. Augustine was one of the most important and influential theologians of the first 1,500 years of the church. Probably after the Apostle Paul was probably the most influential, important theologian. And I've shared this with you before, but I think it's, it's worth mentioning again. Augustine, he had an inscription on his dinner table that said this. It said, who injures the name of an absent friend may not at this table as guest attend. And, and I love that because here's Augustine, this distinguished theologian. And he's saying, look, look, if you want to eat dinner with me, You cannot speak poorly about someone else. Who injures the name of an absent friend may not at this table as guest attend. He he was willing not only to to think and to dwell and to write about deep and lofty theological concepts, but he understood the basic concepts of what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus. We do not slander others when they're not around. And so let me state this as plainly as I possibly can, okay? If you want to live a life worthy of the calling that you've been given as a follower of Jesus, you need to commit not to speaking poorly of someone when they're not present, period, without exceptions. For you're called to live a life marked, marked by gentleness. Thirdly, Thirdly, let's keep moving on here. Paul tells us to be patient with others. Let's read the end of verse 2. He says, Be patient, bearing with one another in love. 
followers of Jesus, we're called to be patient with others, for we serve the God who has been infinitely patient with us. Don't you know that that's true? I mean, if you thought recently about how patient God is with you, many of us here are, are well into our second, our third, fourth, fifth decade of following Jesus, and yet we still routinely trip over the same sins, don't we? We still lose the same battles to anger or greed or laziness or lust. And yet our Father, in his infinite grace, he never fails to be patient with us. Listen, if if you're here and you're married or you're watching at home and you're married, if you were as unfaithful to your spouse as you are to Jesus, you would have been divorced a long time ago, right? If you were as unfaithful to your employer as you are to Jesus, you would have lost your job a long time ago. If you were as unfaithful, unreliable, and inconsistent with the credit card payment with your credit card payments as you are with Jesus, you wouldn't be able to open up a new credit card to save your life. And the reason I know that about you is because it is true of myself. Daily I turn away from the Lord and I I choose to people please or or I choose fear of man or I choose comfort over serving the Lord. And yet, doesn't he show us so much patience? So much patience. Friends, is there anything more off-putting than someone who's inherited a tremendous amount of wealth? Someone who has received much but who refuses to share that wealth with others? I mean, do you know anyone like that? Someone who's inherited quite a bit of money or someone who has a cushy job within their family's successful business that was started by their father or grandfather or uncle, and yet they don't really do anything within the company? You're not even really sure what they do, but but they're just a Smith or they're just a Johnson or they're just a Barker, and so, you know, that's what they do. I didn't even think, Peggy... Yeah, I don't, think, I don't think Chase is a family business for you. I think that's a much bigger company. And yet, despite their privileges and advantages, despite the fact that this individual has been given so much, they're the stingiest, most closed-handed individual you've ever been around. You ever been around someone like that? Or is there anything more, more off-putting than someone who's been forgiven much, who just refuses to forgive others. They've been given second chance, third chance, fourth chance, and yet they just hold a grudge. Someone who's been shown mercy, who is unwilling to extend mercy to others. Is there anything more unattractive than a person like that? Let us then not be people who receive such patience from the Lord, such, such patience and then refuse to extend that same patience to others. Now, I I love the extra little clause at the end of verse 2. I don't know if you caught that. Paul says, be patient, bearing with one another in love. Paul is such a realist. I love that about him. He says, be patient, that is, bear with one another in love, putting up with one another, or tolerating and enduring one another. That's what he's saying when he says, bear with one another. It's to put up with others. It's to tolerate. It's to endure them out of love for them. This is not about your emotions, church. This is about obedience to Christ, isn't it? 
Paul does not say to us, you know, when you're in a home group with someone who shares the same tired old jokes week after week, you need to think that that person's hilarious. That's not what he says. And he doesn't say to the, perhaps the younger women here, you know, when an older woman in the church gives you condescending advice about how to parent your child, I want you to always grab a pen and make sure that you implement whatever advice they're giving you in the moment. He he does not say to us, make sure your hearts are always brimming over with delight and affection for those around you at church, regardless of their attitude or their veiled criticisms or their annoying quirks. No, what Paul is talking about here has nothing to do with our emotions at all. This, once again, this is about obedience. Be patient, bearing, putting up with, enduring others in love. Listen, we all love the idea of being part of a community that shows patience with one another until we're actually forced to do it ourselves. Have you learned that one yet? Until we're forced to show patience with someone whose personality we find draining, or someone whose needs we find exhausting, or someone whose political views we find misguided or even abhorrent. But this is what we must remember, friends. In John chapter 13, when Jesus washed the feet of his disciples, doing the work of his servants, he didn't stop the exercise when Judas brought his sweaty, dirt-covered feet before him. Jesus proceeded to wash and scrub the feet of the man who was on the verge of betraying him for 30 pieces of silver. And his followers of Jesus, as those of who have said to Jesus, I want to be your apprentice. I want to follow in your ways. I want to model my life, Jesus, after your own. We need to be willing to get down on our knees and serve and show patience with those around us, especially, church, those that we find harder to love. Finally, quickly here, Paul tells us to make every effort to maintain unity in our midst. This is my last point. Let's read verse 3 once again. Paul says, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Maintain unity in your midst, Paul is saying, by staying, by being at peace with one another through the bond of peace. Now, if you have your Bible in, in front of you, why don't you go ahead and underline that phrase, make every effort. That's a challenging phrase, is it? Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit. As in every effort. You know, friend, before you post anything online, you should always be asking yourself the question, am I making every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit? And before speaking about a leader in this church, or a policy of this church, or a belief of this church, you should ask yourself, am I making every effort to maintain unity here? Now listen, I'm not suggesting that we need to be zombies here. I'm not suggesting that there aren't appropriate times and avenues to express criticism or to to ask a question, of course. And I would say most of us, if not all of us, are, are mature enough to discern the difference between a, a constructive avenue or time to express a concern and when it's, it's not constructive. 
So listen, don't, don't hear me saying that, that you cannot question us because that is, that is a, a manipulative church that would say that. But before offering your advice about a leader or a direction of the church, I would ask myself the question, am I making every effort to maintain unity in the spirit? Now hear me on this one. When discussing your former church, you should ask yourself, am I making every effort to maintain unity of the Spirit? You know, I I can't tell you how unattractive it is, if I'm just going to be honest, when I encounter someone and they say to me, Pastor Christian, Pastor Christian, I just want you to know I am just so thankful for this church. I am just so thankful to be here. I've been coming here with my family now for three or four weeks. We're so glad to be here. We're just so blown away by how how welcoming everyone's been, by by the, the resources available for our kids. We're just so thankful for that. And you know, this has just been such a blessing for us because my last church was a wreck. Okay, the last pastor I was with was a wreck. Or let me tell you about about the places that I checked out before I came here. I can't tell you how off-putting that is to me. Because in my mind, I'm thinking, okay, how long is it going to be? Is it six months? Is it six years? Until they're at a different church saying, oh, I'm so thankful to be here. This is such a blessing to me because, you know, I'm coming from Grove City Vineyard and that place was a wreck. When speaking about our former church, we we need to say, am I making every effort to maintain unity? Now, again, I'm not asking you to lie about your former church, okay? If you did find manipulation there, if you did feel like the theology was off, you don't have to lie about it. If someone asks you, hey, I'm thinking about checking out this church, what do you think? It's okay to be honest. But when we're just making offhanded comments, in someone's living room, we need, we, need to, we need to think, am I maintaining the unity here that the Spirit gives us? And, and then lastly, we've already discussed this earlier, you know, when you're frustrated with someone, when you're offended, when you're in the midst of a disagreement with someone, always at the forefront of your mind should be the question, am I making every effort? Am I pursuing every possible avenue? Am I doing everything I can to maintain the unity of the Spirit? with my brother or sister in Christ. You know, it's striking to me. I heard a pastor say recently that, that worship in the Bible is it's, it's elevated above all else. It's prioritized above all else. But in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus actually says to his disciples, instead of bringing worship to me, instead of bringing your gift to the altar, I actually want you to head out and reconcile with a friend. Jesus says, you keep the Lord waiting in worship if it means that you can reconcile with a brother or sister in Christ. And so if you're here and you have anything against someone who's a brother or sister in Christ, even if they don't attend this church or if they have something against you, Jesus says, God's going to be here when you're done reconciling. But make a beeline for that person. Be reconciled. Paul tells us, friends, that we're to live a life worthy of the calling we've been given as followers of Jesus. And we do this at least in part by being humble, by being gentle, by showing patience with others, and by making every effort, every effort to maintain unity in our midst. Let it be so among us, church. Let it be so. Amen? Amen. Why don't we stand and let's worship.